70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته معكم صديقتكم كنزة سليماني من الجزائر أبلغ من العمر 32 عاماً Hi, my name is Kenza Sleimani. I'm tuning in from Algeria. My ties with KBS World Radio's Arabic service date back to 2012. I found out about the channel from Korea by chance as I was searching for radio stations. Ever since, I've been tuning in to the news and other programs, and since 2018, I've been serving as an official monitor. KBS World Radio's Arabic service taught me a lot and helped me have a better understanding of Korea. I would like to applaud everyone at KBS World Radio for running an outstanding and successful channel for 70 years. Congratulations on your 70th anniversary, and I wish you the very best in the future as well. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Friday the 20th of January and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. Health authorities have announced that the indoor mask mandate will be lifted for most locations starting January 30th. We'll have full details in news briefing shortly. The IMF has warned that fragmentation could cost the global economy up to 7% of GDP. We discuss these findings and more for Weekly Economy Review. And then coming up for Movie Spotlight, we review two major local releases, The Point Men, the biggest Korean blockbuster to be helmed by a female director, and Phantom, an action thriller set during the Japanese colonial era. Let's begin, Korea 24. South Korea will finally lift its indoor mask restrictions from most locations from late this month. That's more than two years after the regulation was imposed at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Kuhijin, joins us in the studio now to give us what we can expect as we bid farewell to the last remnant of COVID-19 restrictions, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hijin, hello. Hello, Tango. So this news comes on the day that the nation marked the third year since the first case of COVID-19 was reported in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, It won't be kicking in right away. The mandate will be lowered to a recommendation after the end of the Lunar New Year holiday. Uh, This excludes senior care facilities uh, on public transport and other high-risk facilities for now, where it will remain mandatory. Mm -hmm. So can you sum up the upcoming changes for us? Well, the Central Disease Control Headquarters said infection and other conditions have stabilised enough for the first of a two-stage easing in masking rules, uh, which have been in place, as you said, since uh, October 2020. New sub of the virus, as well as developments overseas, will likely have limited uh, impact on local policy changes, it said. And during an agency meeting, 
Prime Minister Han Dok-su attributed the late January schedule to the probable increase in travel and in-person contact in the upcoming holidays. He voiced confidence over the nation's capacity to manage any unexpected changes in infections. However, health authorities said indoor mask rules will remain in place for the time being at high-risk facilities such as nursing homes, mental health care facilities and welfare centres for those with disabilities or public transportation. This includes buses, taxis, subways, trains, passenger ships and commercial planes. Still, a recent poll shows that some 6 in 10 South Koreans intend to keep wearing masks indoors at least for now. Uh, The indoor mask mandate will remain in place during the upcoming Lunar New Year holiday, as we mentioned, uh, which is the first without gathering restrictions, of course. Over 26 million, or more than half the population, are expected to travel during this time, whether it be to their hometowns or for trips overseas. And in fact, we're already seeing expressways clogging up. So what's the latest on the mass exodus? Well, according to the Korea Expressway Corporation, as of noon on Friday, the average travel time expected from Seoul to uh, Tollgate to the uh, southern uh, port city of Busan is six hours and ten minutes, some two hours longer than usual. A trip to Ulsan will likely take five hours and fifty minutes, Daegu and Gwangju over five hours, and Gangneung on the east coast will uh, take some two hours and forty minutes, and more than three hours for Daejeon in the central region. Local airports will also likely be jam-packed with the Korea Airports Corporation estimating uh, that more than 1 million people will use 14 airports nationwide from Friday to next Tuesday. That's not to say Incheon International Airport won't won't be busy. Uh, Korea's largest airport is expected to serve nearly 620,000 passengers between Friday and next Tuesday, up nearly 14-fold from last year, as many head uh, overseas to or enter South Korea for the holidays. Yes, we hope our listeners in Korea have a safe trip during the upcoming holiday. Let's get the latest now on President Yoon Sung-yeol, who's in Switzerland attending the World Economic Forum in Davos. Uh, during a special address at the event, Yoon called for global cooperation and solidarity to tackle global supply chain disruptions and other key concerns the world is facing. Can you tell us more? Well, in his speech at this year's World Economic Forum on t- Thursday, uh, Yoon Sung yeol uh, called for uh, joint action to shore up international supply chains in the wake of recent global supply shocks, pledging that South Korea will be a key partner in that pursuit. Over the last few years, the world saw dire shortages in vaccines, pharmaceuticals, semiconductors and uh, in industrial sectors, as well as food and energy The South Korean leader noted that the war in Ukraine has worsened disruption in uh, supply chains. Yoon said that strengthening their resilience should also be achieved in the spirit of freedom. During this 15-minute speech, Yoon also suggested that nuclear power and clean hydrogen are key means to fight climate change. Before attending this year's uh, Davos Forum, the president made a state visit to the United Arab Emirates where he toured the South Korean-built Baraka uh, nuclear energy plant and highlighted his country's potential for more such energy projects overseas. Yoon wraps up his eight-day uh, trip overseas uh, and will return on Saturday morning. 
Meanwhile, regarding recent controversy over remarks hinting at the possibility of South Korean nuclear armament, President Yoon said that the realistic and rational option for South Korea is to fully respect the non-proliferation treaty regime. He also said that he sees little issue with Japan bolstering its self-defense capabilities. These remarks came during an interview with the Wall Street Journal. So what did he say exactly? Well, Yoon said he does not see many problems with Japan bolstering its self-defense capabilities as he believes trilateral cooperation between Seoul, Washington and Tokyo is key to deterring North Korea's nuclear threat. Uh, During that interview on the sidelines of the Davos Forum, Yoon expressed full confidence in the US extended deterrence against the North's nuclear weapons. Yoon said that the three nations are preparing a stronger joint uh, planning and uh, joint execution in operating the U.S. nuclear assets on the Korean peninsula. Yoon said that the realistic and rational option for South Korea is to fully respect the non-proliferation treaty regime on the North's asymmetrical uh, capabilities, including cyber war and intelligence. Yoon stressed that focus should be placed on protecting the nation from cyber attacks adding that his government is has been working to boost the nation's cyber war capability since taking his taking office and finally the foreign ministry summoned a senior official from the japanese embassy to protest japan's resubmission of a letter recommending a unesco world heritage designation for a former gold mine linked to its wartime forced labor can you tell us more well, Second Vice Foreign Minister Ido Hun on Friday called in Daisuke Namioka, the embassy's Minister of Economic Affairs, to lodge a formal protest. Earlier, the ministry issued a statement expressing regret that Tokyo is seeking a UNESCO designation of the Sado mines, despite having yet to fulfill an earlier pledge to inform people about the forced labour of Koreans on Hashima Island following its designation in 2015. Urging Tokyo to first fulfil its promise, the ministry pledged to continue working with UNESCO and the international community to ensure that the whole story is reflected, including the painful past of Japan's wartime forced labour. Tokyo originally applied for that designation last February, despite opposition from Seoul over the history of the mining facilities. UNESCO, however, however, did not review the submitted documents as they were considered incomplete. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. A new report by the International Monetary Fund has warned that geoeconomic fragmentation could cost the global economy up to 7% of GDP. It's a topic that's also being discussed at the World Economic Forum in Davos this year. And we'll be discussing here as well for Weekly Economy Review now. We'll also touch upon China's economic growth in 2022 and South Korea's new standard trucking freight rates system Giving his insights on these issues is our expert guest, economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea, who's joined us now in the studio. Professor Yang, hello. Hello. 
Let's dive straight into that IMF report, which came out on Sunday. Uh, the headline conclusion is that fragmentation could cost the global economy up to 7% of GDP. The report also said the losses could go up to 12% in some countries in case of additional technological decoupling. And as I said, it's being discussed in Davos as well. In fact, the theme for this year's gathering is cooperation in a fragmented world. So, Professor, can you tell us more about the IMF's report? What do we mean by geoeconomic fragmentation and what factors are contributing to it? Okay, well, the uh, IMF report says that the uh, geoeconomic fragmentation is a policy-driven reversal of global economic integration. In other words, it describes the current attempt to establish trusted trading networks, uh, which, if you go dig into a bit, dig into it a bit further, it really means establishing trading blocks. Mm. Uh, so, IMF researchers who wrote the paper states that fragmentation is motivated by, among other things, security considerations enhancing autonomy via reduced reliance on other countries or regions, which could arise from uh, f- strategic economic rivalry or uh, th- just the uh, s- supply, ch- uh, supply chain security. Uh, fragmentation may be a consequence of uh, domestic economic policy objectives as well. For example, desire to uh, – this is from the report, so it's in sort of a uh, economic – technical lease, uh, but incentivize production and employment within national borders and a reaction against perceived unequal distribution of gains from trade. So it has elements of the anti-globalization rhetoric into it. Mm. Uh, now, the causes of it include geopolitical consideration. Uh, so that's politics. Uh, for right. example, Brexit, U.S.-China trade war, Russian invasion into Ukraine. But Even with this sort of anti-globalization rhetoric, there is some economic logic uh, bit of it as Mm. well. Uh, During the the, uh, coronavirus epidemic, we ran into supply chain problems. Uh, For example, the uh, semiconductors, Uh, lack of uh, semiconductors, which were just uh, worth a few cents each, held up. Uh, automobile production in all the advanced countries. Right. Uh, so uh, companies are rethinking their supply chains. Do we really need to have supply chains that are spread throughout the world? Or can we have perhaps shorter supply chains closer uh, so that we will not be affected by something like the pandemic again? Uh, now, uh, this is not in the report, but I think uh, we can sort of uh, think about this. Uh, the uh, when this whole thing started with the Trump Trump administration, hmm. uh, it was China versus the West, China right. versus the rest of the world. But now it seems to have uh, splintered some uh, with the uh, U.S. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the uh, CHIPS Act, which seek to have production of semiconductors, uh, electric vehicle batteries within the borders of the United States, uh, Europe has gotten very angry over that. Uh, so EU is threatening to uh, install their own version of IRA and CHIPS Act. That means it is no longer China versus the rest of the world. It's, uh, right now it looks to be sort of a, at least a three-trading block world. Uh, the U.S., EU and China-Russia uh, axis. Uh, now, a uh, problem with this is that the uh, IMF report goes into it. The, there's going to be less trade, so more 
uh, inefficiencies, higher cost for products. There will be less technical transmission uh, from advanced countries to less developed countries. And the way that they model it using simulation on a computer, uh, the cost uh, under a uh, sort of a worst scenario, perhaps not the worst, but the uh, worst scenario is that it'll go up to perhaps 7% of the global GDP. Uh, and losses in some countries will be higher, as you've said. Uh, some uh, uh, losses may go up to about 12% uh, percent for some countries, and the countries which are most vulnerable will be less developed countries because uh, they have more to lose by not uh, having trade and not gaining technology from abroad. Right, so this is essentially a sort of a snapback from globalization, this uh, phenomena. But then, Professor, how urgent is this issue, should we say? What can be done to tackle this, or is this something that can be controlled. Okay, well, the, uh, right now the politicians seem to be dead set on doing this. Uh, and again, uh, the supply chain problems that they had during the pandemic is used as one of the justifications. Uh, but if uh, we look at the uh, global uh, supply chain right now, uh, we can see that uh, trying to have supply chains closer within your country is not necessarily the solution. Uh, the United States had trouble gaining semiconductors from other countries because it was too far away, but now they're having problems with uh, baby formula because, well, uh, United States tried to have all the production of its baby formula in the United States, mm. uh, and they had maybe four or five major facilities uh, where they produced baby formula, and one of them uh, had some problems. They had to shut it down, and now they're facing shortages of baby formula. Uh, now, the... Uh, under uh, usual cases, what would happen is, well, you just import more from abroad. Right. Uh, but when uh, President Trump changed US, uh, NAFTA to USMCA, he uh, restricted imports of baby formula from Canada and Mexico. Mm. So uh, they couldn't import from abroad, and that's part of the reason why they have such serious shortages. But the IMF report suggests a three-pronged strategy. First, strengthening the international trade system, the multilateral trade system. Second, helping vulnerable countries to deal with debt. And third, stepping up climate action because, well, climate problems are going to make these pro uh, the uh, fragmentation problems worse. Mm. Uh, but uh, if you look at these three elements one at a time, well, uh, strengthening the international trade system. No one is interested in doing that right now. Right. Uh, the WTO issued uh, panel rulings uh, which said that the uh, U.S. Uh, did not have justification to raise Chinese tariffs, and U.S. basically said, we're going to ignore this. Uh, and one of the reasons that U.S. can't ignore this is that the appellate court system in the WTO right now is in paralysis because the United States refuses to assign judges. Mm. Um, so that's not going to, I don't think that's going to go uh, anywhere. Second, helping vulnerable countries deal with debt. These countries dealt with, uh, ha uh, increased their debt, especially the poorer countries, uh, to deal with the pandemic. But now the uh, interest rates are going up and they're going to have have tremendous problems trying to finance the uh, interest uh, burden as well as the uh, uh, debt burden itself that they have to carry out. Mm. But the uh, interest rate keeps on going up. 
And again, this seems to be due to the United States trying to control their domestic inflation. Right. You can you can understand why they would want to increase uh, interest rate for domestic uh, uh, to uh, reduce domestic inflation, but that is just causing too much hardships uh, around the world. And third, stepping up climate action. Well, during the epidemic, during the uh, high price of oil, more countries started using coal. So. Uh, all these three uh, suggestions that IMF had to solve the problem, I don't think it's going to get anywhere in the short term. Right. Well, this is a, uh, a macro trend, I guess, that uh, is happening and we need to be aware of moving forward as we uh, continue to see how the global economy turns. But uh, meanwhile, China trade tensions, they are one of the factors of fragmentation in recent years. Uh, on that note, China released its economic growth figures for last year, and it was one of the worst performances in decades, as growth was dragged down by repeated lockdowns, hammering households and businesses. The National Bureau of Statistics figures show that the Chinese economy grew by just 3% last year, short of Beijing's target of 5.5%. So, Professor, what do you read into these figures? Okay, well, it's uh, part of the problem is long-term, part of the problem is short-term. The short-term problem, you mentioned the uh, shutdowns in the factories they had because of the uh, zero-COVID policy. They're getting rid of that zero-COVID policy, but even with that, the uh, projection for growth for China this year is only around 4.3%, and that's because of their long-term problems. Now, first, their uh, per capita GDP has increased greatly over the last 10 years. That naturally slows down the uh, growth rate, uh, but also uh, their domestic debt problem uh, is going to slow down their economy a lot. Mm. And the reason has to do with housing and construction. So they're having, in some sense, similar problems that we're having in Korea. Uh, in China, construction forms about 25% of GDP. So if their construction uh, market slows down, and then they're going, their economy is going to slow down. Mm. But they have a major debt problem, partially because of a housing bubble, partially because the government forces to uh, financial institutions to lend to state-owned enterprises, which are not doing well. Uh, so we saw that with the uh, problems that they have with the company called Hongdu last year. Mm. Uh, so construction is down and housing prices are going down. Because housing prices are going, to, going down, we're going to have a, what's called a wealth effect. People are not going to feel comfortable spending, so consumption is going to go down. And so overall, we're going to have a lackluster growth. Uh, it'll be better than last year because uh, we no longer have uh, factory shutdowns. Right. But still, it'll be a very slow uh, year this year uh, by all expectation. Uh, there is also uh, some concern that the Chinese population is falling, sure. but uh, that's not going to affect the growth rate for about maybe uh, 10 or 15 years because, well, uh, the uh, lack of uh, the uh, decline in population is because uh, uh, they're not having that much birth. Mm. Uh, but uh, by the time that hits the labor market, well, these kids have to grow up. Sure, sure. Uh, so it'll be about 15 to 20 years before that factor hits. Uh, how... What should uh, South Korea make of all this? How worried should South Korea be on this front? Well, uh, South Korea, we are going to have a better export to China than last year, but maybe not back to the peak levels that we saw before the pandemic. Uh, but long term, 
we were going to lose some exports anyway because, well, Chinese technology is catching up to Korea, uh, and uh, because of that, we are going to lose some markets to Chinese manufacturers who are supplying within China. Well, with Beijing now lifting most of their strict COVID restrictions, we'll see how that affects the nation's economy this year. Before we wrap up, let's pivot to a domestic issue. Earlier this week, the South Korean government proposed a stripped-down wage guarantee system for truckers as a substitute for the safe trucking freight rate system that expired last month. The Korea Transport Institute unveiled the proposal on Wednesday, which comes after major disruptions late last year due to a unionised cargo trucker's strike that lasted 16 days and which called for an extension of the safe rate system. Similar to the safe trucking freight rate system, the new standard trucking freight rate system would apply for three years and also cover container and cement trucks with an aim to prevent overwork and overloading by guaranteeing minimum freight rates for truck drivers. However, the proposed system will eliminate the the clause in the previous system that penalises consigners who fail to guarantee the minimum rates, essentially rendering it less compulsory. What do you make of this proposal, Professor, which has been met with opposition from both the unionised truckers and the shipping companies? Well, the, uh, the uh, trucking companies and truckers ship, uh, are angry because, well, the, uh, the system replaces what was guaranteed minimum price with a suggested minimum price. And uh, if uh, the uh, companies which hire these drivers and freight companies do not keep to the uh, minimum price, in the past they had to pay penalties, uh, but now... It's only a guideline, so uh, they will maybe get a slap on the wrist un- unless they keep on repeating uh, the uh, uh, gu- uh, not keeping to the guideline. Mm. Uh, so it's natural that the uh, fr- uh, drivers are angry and the freight companies are angry. But this whole system of safe prices, it was flawed to begin with. Mm. Uh, now, the uh, logic was the uh, U.S., Australia, U- European Union, they do it. But... If you look at the system in those countries, the uh, real way that they keep safety on uh, truckers is that they limit the time that they can drive. So they not only limit how many uh, hours that they can drive in a day before taking a rest, uh, but they also uh, limit how many hour, how many days you can drive in a week or how many days you can drive in a month, and they keep records very strictly. If they disobey, then there's uh, going to be heavy penalties. And because uh, their time that they can drive is limited, uh, the uh, driver's income would have fallen. Mm. So in order to keep their income up and have them keep obeying the law, they passed the minimum uh, freight price. Right. Uh, but in Korea, we did not take in the uh, time limit rule. Mm. The only time limit rule that Korea has is for every two hours that you drive, you rest for 15 minutes. And that's not going to be enough if you're going to be driving, say, six, uh, 16 hours every day of the week. Mm. Uh, so we did not import the main regulation, but we imported the supporting regulation. Right. So uh, when they did an empirical test, it showed that there's virtually no effect on safety. And that's no wonder, because we did not import the main part of the regulation, only the supporting part. So uh, we do need to rethink the whole thing uh, if we are worried about safety. uh, But in uh, the uh, driver's point of view, you had a minimum price that guaranteed their income, which went away. So they're angry. 
Okay, we'll wrap it up there. Professor Yang, as always, thank you for your analysis and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 14.92 points, or 0.63% on Friday, to close the week at 2,395.26. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 5.08 points, or 0.71%, to close at 717.97. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 3.41 against the U.S. dollar, to close the day at 1,235.51. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, we have Korea Trending, our daily segment where we round up some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee joining us in the studio. Walter, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, Tango, it's always good to see you. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? Okay, so first we'll talk about new data that shows an increase in the number of accidents caused by drowsy driving during the Lunar New Year holidays. We'll also find out why the number of cars in the nation that are more than 15 years old drastically increased last year. And finally, we'll learn which veteran South Korean actress passed away on Thursday. Okay, so we start with a story about a warning to those driving back to their hometowns during this holiday next week. Can you tell us more? Yes. So new data has found that car accidents involving drowsy driving during the daytime surged sharply during the Lunar New Year holidays. According to a research institute on traffic and environment under Hyundai Marine and Fire Insurance Company on Thursday, the number of such accidents reached 13.3 on a daily average during the solar holidays, up 28% from ordinary days. Now, the agency made the assessment after analysing the characteristics of car accidents that occurred between 2018 and 2020. Okay, so you said, uh, so you said accidents are climbing uh, during the daytime. That was the phenomenon. Mm. Uh, what times are we talking about exactly? So the Institute found that nearly 43% of car accidents involving drivers who fell asleep behind the wheel happened between 11am and also 5pm. Now, the Institute urged drivers to roll down their windows uh, often for airflow, citing that many tend to keep their windows shut during the wintertime while using heaters. It also advised drivers to get enough sleep and refrain from drinking the day before they take the wheel. Yes, uh, meeting relatives can take it out of you, Mm. uh, particularly if you have been drinking. (laughs) I understand that's not all. What were some of the other notable findings from the agency's analysis of car accidents? Right. So the agency also found that many car accidents during the Lunar New Year holidays occurred at highway rest stops and drowsy shelters installed on the highway for drivers who feel tired. Now, the number of accidents in such locations during the holiday more than doubled compared to usual days between 2018 and 2022. Now, the agency urged drivers to slow down when approaching rest stops and such shelters, which tend to draw bigger than usual crowds during the holiday period, raising the risk of collisions between cars entering and exiting, as well as collisions involving pedestrians. Yes, so over 26 million people nationwide are expected to travel during the upcoming holiday, and a substantial majority of over 90% are forecast to travel by car, so there will be lots of traffic on the roadways. Be sure to get sufficient amount of sleep before hitting the road, avoid drowsy driving, and do drive safely uh, generally. 
Okay, let's move on to our second story for this segment. What do you have for us? Yes, so the number of cars in the nation that are more than 15 years old approached 3 million last year. According to the Korea Automobile Manufacturers Association on Friday, the number of registered cars in the nation stood at roughly 25.5 million. Of that total, around 2.97 million were 15 years or older, an increase of nearly 7% from 2021. Take note that the number of such cars surged by nearly 200,000 in 2022, after the figure remained between the 2.7 and 2.8 million range for the past six years. Okay, so why was there an increase in the number of older cars last year? Well, one reason is the setback in vehicle production resulting from a global shortage of semiconductors. Last year, domestic sales fell slightly over 3% from 2021 to around 1.4 million units, the lowest level since 2013. Due to the setback, consumers ended up having to wait for more than a year to get their new vehicles. Hikes in the nation's key interest rate that were carried out from the second half of last year also led many customers or consumers to refrain from buying new cars. That's because the hikes led to a rise in interest rates on auto loans. Right, I see. So uh, the numbers also suggest that owning cars that are 15 years old or older were not so common in the past. How long do consumers usually drive their cars before scrapping them? Well, that period was estimated to be 16 years in 2021, much longer than the 8.3 years estimation posted in 2000 and 14.87 years in 2015. Now, the fact that the durability of cars has improved with better technology is estimated to have extended the car's lifespan. Mm. The number of old cars expected to continuously see a rise this year as interest on car loans remains high and as the nation is expected to be hit by an economic downturn. Now, Professor Kim Bilsu of Daring University College's Department of Automotive Engineering noted that consumers don't tend to purchase cars when tight fiscal policies are in place. Right, so these uh, figures paint quite an interesting picture of the economy in Korea in general, it seems. Yes. Okay, let's move on to our final story for today. What do you have for us? Yeah, so some sad news for veteran South Korean actress Yoon Chong hee has died at the age of 79. Now, according to officials in the film industry, Yoon, who had long been suffering from Alzheimer's disease since 2010, passed away at her residence in Paris on Thursday. Now, Yoon was born in Busan in 1944 and made her film debut in 1967 with Sorrowful Youth. She received the Best New Actor Award at the Daejeon Film Awards and, and that year and the Most Popular Female Star Award at the Blue Dragon Film Awards. Yes, uh, Yoon was a beloved actress, mostly appearing in films between the 1960s and 80s, but she had a very prolific career during that time. How many movies did she appear in? Yeah, she appeared in a whopping 280 films with major performances in A Woman on the Verge that was released in 1987 and Man Mubang released in 1994. Now, she ended her career or acting career by appearing in director Lee Chang-dong's 2010 film Poetry, which won the Best Screenplay Award at the 2010 Cannes Film Festival. It was her first role in 16 years. Right, but it was a particularly significant film for her as well because I believe that film led her to win an Order of France Award presented by the 
French culture minister, right? Yes, that's correct. So Yoon received the Order of Arts and Letters in August 2011 after poetry drew, drew rave reviews in France. Now, Yoon's husband, pianist Bec Gonu, received the same honour in 2001, making them the first South Korean couple to get such recognition from the French government. Now, take note that Yoon had studied in France in 1973 and received a master's degree in film studies from New Sorbonne University Paris III. Yoon is survived by her husband and daughter, Tini, who is a violinist. That's all for Korea Trending today. Walter, thank you for those stories. I understand that we won't be seeing you mm. for a couple of weeks. Yes. I hope you have a great Lunar New Year break and we'll see you when you get back. We'll see you in the Lunar New Year. We continue on now to Movie Spotlight, our weekly look at some of the latest cinematic releases at the Korean box office and online. Sharing their thoughts on these films are our film critics. First, we have Jason Beshevace to my right. Hello, Jason. It's good to see you. Hello, Jaya. And Darcy Paquette is back with us as well. Darcy, hello. Hi, good to see you. Yes, it's good to see you too. Okay, so it's a pretty exciting week this week as we have two major local releases both interesting in terms of their gender as well. What we mean by that is one is a male-driven film but uh, helmed by a female director and the other has strong and layered female characters at the fore. OK, so let's begin with the former. It's called The Point Men or Kyosap in Korean and it's directed by Im Sun Le. Jason, this is based on a real story, right? Yeah, the backdrop, uh, backdrop here will be familiar to uh, many listeners. Uh, the film depicts the 2007 South Korean hostage crisis uh, in which 23 missionaries were kidnapped by uh, the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, this is a real test for the Nomian administration, uh, who had officials on the ground to negotiate with the Taliban. Now, in the film, uh, Hwan Jong-min plays a senior diplomat uh, who collaborates with the NI- an NIS agent played by Hyun Bin in an effort to get the, the hostages released. Initially, they kind of had two you know, di- you know, very different approaches to try and secure their release, but when their plans kind of go, go awry, they, they come together in one last effort to try and get the missionaries back home. Uh, it's, of course, directed by Im Sun Lei. Uh, it's her latest film. You know, she's behind the movies Little Forest, Whistleblower Forever in the Moment. It is historic because this is the first time a female director has directed a movie that has, has a budget of 15 billion won or more. So um, it is significant. Indeed. OK, so Darcy, this has a compelling setup, A-list stars, a big budget, shot overseas, all the ingredients for a big blockbuster. Does it deliver on that front? Well, I mean, it, yes and no. <laughs> um, I mean, it definitely is a blockbuster in terms of its scale. Mm. And, you know, the, it's really ambitious in the sense that, you know, this was shot during the pandemic and they actually went to Jordan to shoot this. And uh, so it looks very different from, you know, any other Korean film that's coming out these days, just simply because of the setting. And, you know, shooting it was really complex and complicated. Uh, I think in terms of the storytelling, I wouldn't, I mean, it's different from a typical blockbuster because it's not kind of a, a hero story. It's not a. Uh, it, it has you know one action set piece kind of, but not mm. um, you know it's not meant to kind of blow the 
the viewer away or to uh, give you these really intense moments of, you know, these thrills or, um, or also even, you know, this, the kind of emotional scenes that Korean cinema and TV content are really famous for. Uh, it's it has a realistic feel to it, and so in that sense, among the you know blockbuster scale works that Korea has produced, this one is pretty unique. I'd, I'd say. Okay, so it's not your typical blockbuster fare. Did it work for you? It did, and I mean, I recognize that this isn't going to work for everybody. And you know, I've been reading some complaints online that uh, you know people didn't feel the same kind of you know excitement or you know at the big plot twists, you know, they didn't get the emotions that they were expecting. Mm. And in a way, that's kind of what I like about this film, because, you know, I mean, blockbuster storytelling is so familiar, and it follows the same kind of formula, so that you know what's coming. And this is a movie that's made, it's based on a real story, you know, about a a story that was really complicated and didn't have any easy solutions. And it wasn't the kind of thing where you could just kind of power in with some some machine guns and, you know... (laughs) work about a solution and really it's about you know these diplomats uh, ordinary people who are faced with solving a really difficult situation that wasn't their fault and their hands are tied because of political concerns and you know the orders that they're getting from above and how they kind of push through that to get the best possible solution that they can interesting so jason what did do you think and do you think audiences will go for a film which is not your typical blockbuster i quite like the film uh you know i agree with darcy it is quite different um i think there's a conscious decision uh to not really develop uh the missionaries themselves mm. uh, they play a very very mi- minor minor would be uh, generous actually it's uh, mm. uh they're almost cameos in the film uh and i think that's deliberate because you know the trip was of course controversial and um so it doesn't have that kind of, I guess, connection uh, in terms of the melodrama. And also there's the kind of the bromance as well, which you so <laughs> often get in Korean films. You've got, you know, the, you've got this NIS agent, you've got the diplomat. You know, they kind of hate each other initially and then they kind of like each other. And uh, and that's something that's been played, played out in so many Korean films. Of course, you know, JSA, we've seen other movies such as Escape from Mogadishu and uh, and that's not, it's there, but it's its very much toned down and the same with the set pieces as well. And so for that very same reason, yeah, for those reasons, I like it. But clearly, audiences do disagree uh, with me, I think, because it hasn't really, it hasn't, I mean, in terms of the, the netters and scores, and uh, you, know, you have to be careful when you look at those, but uh, it hasn't really scored highly. Now, film's playing longer now, so maybe, you know, over time, people will appreciate it more. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a different film, and as a result, I liked it. Yeah, I do think the kind of people who follow the news really closely, you know, might appreciate this film right. because it is kind of yeah. actually saying something, which is unusual sure. for a for a blockbuster film. Okay, another interesting point about this film is it has been shot overseas in Jordan, as you said, Darcy, and uh, we've mentioned uh, Escape from Mogadishu. Uh, that's set overseas as well, and there was also the Roundup last year that was set in Vietnam, I believe. So there seems to be a bit of a trend at the moment to set films overseas and shoot them there as well. Uh, Darcy, what do you think it says about the Korean film industry currently? Well, it's a sign both that the Korean film industry is developing. I mean, this is a trend that was starting in earnest just before the pandemic. And, you know, partly just because, you know, Korean films are really successful. And so, you know, the average 
return on a lot of these films was quite high, and so directors could afford to go overseas, and there was a lot of competition, and so shooting a film overseas gives the film its own particular look. Uh, and there's also just the fact that it's more expensive now to shoot a movie in Korea than it used to be. Right. And okay. so the gap between you know the cost of shooting a film in Korea and shooting it overseas isn't as high as it used to be. Uh, and so in a way, that's kind of given a lot of directors opportunity to explore these stories that they may not have been able to do in the past. You know, we have Bogota, which is shot in Colombia, uh, that you know ran into all these troubles shooting during the pandemic, but that will be coming out at some point. And uh, there's another film, Korean title is Pirap, or Hostage, which is kind of a similar kind of setup to, to this movie, actually. Mm. Uh, it's also set in the Middle East. Uh and yeah, so it's, I mean, the timing is unfortunate in the sense that the audience is not what it used to be now. And mm. so the economics are kind of working against these really ambitious overseas set projects. But uh, at least for the next year or so, we'll have a few more of them coming to theaters. Yeah, it might dry out. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And finally, Jason, a quick note on the director. We mentioned that this is a landmark film because she's essentially the first female director to lead a big budget uh, action film as such. How has she done, do you think? Could this be the start of a, a trend as well? Yeah, um, we're seeing you know more female directors in the industry, absolutely. Uh, Imsene is actually the most successful uh, commercial uh, filmmaker. She's uh, made up movies in different genres. Um, and, you know, Little Forest is this kind of really enchanting uh, enchanting movie set in kind of rural Korea, but she she's done all sorts of different films over over her career. Uh, she made Waikiki Brothers, you know that was the first kind of collaboration with Hwang Jong Min, so they kind of reunited in this movie. And I think it, she really does kind of uh, showcase her talent here. Uh, I just hope people give the film a little bit of time and don't are not put off by some of the low scores, uh, you know, on these kind of portal sites because you know actually I really like the film. It's really tight. It's really disciplined, which is mm. you know unusual when it comes to a blockbuster that's often mm, what yeah. two hours thirty <laughs> minutes. You know, this is this is two hours. I think it's less than two hours, isn't it? So yeah, um, yeah no, I, I really liked it, uh, but I can see how some people will disagree with me. Okay, so that was the Point Men or Kyosop. The other major film we're covering this week is Lee Hyung's Phantom or Ryuyang in Korean, and it's set in the colonial period. Darcy, there's a big and impressive ensemble cast here, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. I mean, with Seok Yeonggu, Lee Hani, Park So Dam from Parasite, uh, <laughs> Park Hee from Squid Game, So Hyun Woo. Um, yeah, and it's not only that; it looks really beautiful, and so it's you know it's a real interestingly packaged film it, it's a glittery film in, mm. in many different senses uh, it's based on a chinese novel called sound of the wind uh by mai jia um, it was published in 2007 and then there was a chinese language film in 2009 called the message uh, which screened at the busan film festival and which i saw and which was a lot of fun as well um but you know this adaptation they've moved the setting to korea uh, it's set in 1933 and you know, it takes place within this seaside hotel uh, where, you know, there had been this assassination attempt uh, that wasn't quite successful. And so five suspects are taken and they're all kind of put within this hotel. And right. then they, you know, the police are kind of listening in and they're trying to figure out who among them is, you know, a member of this organization that plotted the assassination. Jason, this film is notable for its uh, female characters, as we mentioned earlier. Without uh, giving away too many spoilers, though, what makes this film significant in terms of the roles that they play? 
Yeah, so, you know, Korean films have long been male-driven. You just have to look at the kind of star system in Korea. And uh, if you look at the male stars, you know, so often they can they can age and remain popular. You've got Ha Jung-woo, you've got Kim Yun-suk, you've got Lee Byung-hun, you've got Song Gang-ho. The list goes on and on. But when it comes to female actors, female performers... Uh, that's there are few opportunities for them. Mm. There are fewer kind of yeah sure we there are a lot of female stars, but are they really given the same opportunities as their ma- male counterparts? Not really, not at all, in fact. Uh, and so Lee uh, Young here is really kind of it's an ensemble cast, and I don't it's, it's, I'm trying not to give away uh, <laughs> too much here, but uh, he basically puts the female uh, li- you know leads here very much at front and centre. Mm. Uh, and there's some really kind of striking imagery, particularly at the end of the film, you know, Ian's not being, you know, subtle in his, his, in, uh, in his endeavour. So, uh, yeah, I personally really hugely admire him uh, for doing so. Uh, the problem is, though, whenever directors have done this in the past, you know, you've got a strong female character in a film, quite often, invariably, they get, you know, um, you get the anti-feminists out and completely bash the film uh, online. You saw that with films such as... You can go back to 2013, in fact, uh, How to Use Guys with Secret Tips, directed by Yuan Sok, and then also, more recently, uh, Kim Jong-un, 1982 and 2019. Now, that film actually managed to do really well. Mm. Um, but, uh, again, what we're seeing is, you know, netizens just not happy with the fact that you've got great female characters in a film and uh, they're reacting to that but it's it's terrific i love the film right right (laughs) Uh, well it is a sad phenomenon the the so-called ratings terrorism but we don't get bogged by that here jason why did you like it what was good about it yeah darcy mentioned the the style uh because eang his use of style is is really kind of uh alluring you see that in the believer you see that in silenced uh which also starts paxidam also set in the colonial era and uh yeah he just has a really great aesthetic that I, i i i just really really like watching and as soon as the film started i was like yes this is a <laughs> Lee Young and um yeah it's so beautiful to look at uh it, it's really well paced the acting's great and uh, i liked it a lot actually I, i i went in with high expectations i was lucky to go and see the movie at the film's mm. premiere and uh you know it far exceeded that so um yeah definitely go out and check it it's a great film and darcy what did you think yeah i loved it i think it's the director's best film uh it's you know the first half of the film has a lot of intrigue and and you know, just yeah. you can enjoy just kind of watching the style of the film and all yeah. of the the details of it but then it kind of breaks into these action set pieces in the second half and those are really well executed too it's a lot of fun to really watch things yeah because kind of. <laughs> at one point i thought okay it's, it feels like kind of almost like a chain piece where it's like all set in you know one place and then suddenly it just erupts. Wow. And it's okay. just great. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of like Knives Out if everybody grabbed yeah. <laughs> guns and started to shoot each other halfway through. <laughs> okay, it sounds fun. Uh, okay, so that was uh, Phantom or Ryuryong. That's where we're going to leave it for Movie Spotlight this week, gentlemen. Thank you for your reviews as always. And have a good weekend. We'll see you next time. You too. Happy uh, Lunar New Year. Save your money back to Yeah, see you next time. And that's all from us here on Career 24. We'll be back next Wednesday after the Lunar New Year break. Uh, During our days off, we'll be re-airing a couple of KBS World Radio specials instead. So we hope you tune in for that. Signing off now, I've been your host, Kwon Jang. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we hope all our listeners have a wonderful Salal break. Goodbye.